we're now seeing that the disinformation economy is thriving more than ever. You know, this is the underbelly of everything. This is an industry that is 400 to $700 billion. Wow. Nobody knows if it's 400 or if it's 700. <laughs> and, like it's impossible to measure. And the ad tech companies don't even know. The advertisers don't know. Of course, the publishers, the websites, they don't know either. What that means is that we should be asking a lot more questions. And Nandini and I decided to start a newsletter and we just started asking questions publicly. That's how it all began. Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you've just joined The Quest for Good, an interview series where innovators from coders to CEOs share stories about how they overcome obstacles to create breakthrough change. If you're looking for a better way to take your work to the next level, then stay tuned because I have just the story for you. When you buy a digital ad through something like Google, it usually gets placed on a website, but you don't get to choose which website it goes on. Who does? The ad tech industry, which is not a problem until you discover that they're running your ad for your precious brand on a site that promotes disinformation, racism, hate, or even treason. So how do you stop that from happening? That's what Claire Atkin and her partner Nandini Jami are trying to figure out through their work at their Check My Ads Institute. Together, they're taking on a ridiculously huge and largely unregulated industry to fight not only disinformation and hate, but the rise of global authoritarianism. When Claire first started to tell me about what's really going on in the digital ad space, I have to say that I was pretty shocked and horrified. As a small business owner, I had no idea I could accidentally be funding terrorism. She has an amazing story and so much wisdom to share with us that I can't wait to get started with this conversation. So Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks, Denise. Thanks so much for having me. We are Check My Ads. We're so happy to be here. We are the ad tech watchdog. We're looking at the traffic controllers of this $700 billion industry. So I'm happy to dive in. Oh my goodness, I'm going to have so many questions for you. And I know that you've really been leading the fight against disinformation for several years now, pushing back on issues from racism to election fraud. And when you look at all the work that you're doing, my guess is that this isn't necessarily what you saw yourself doing when you were a kid. So it'd be great if you could kick things off by telling us a bit about how Check My Ads got started. Nandini is my co-founder and she and I are both marketers. We were working building tech companies, getting the positioning right for the marketing products that we were building. We were doing focus groups and strategy around marketing. And then when it came to advertising, we were sort of not really involved in the ad tech process until we realized in 2016 that the ad tech world that we relied on for our campaigns was being co-opted for the purpose of election disinformation and for hate and bigotry. And we realized that we needed to learn far more about this subject. As advertisers, we don't know where our campaigns are going. We have to trust the middlemen who put out these ads on our behalf onto the internet. And that is a problem because 
we we don't realize that our ads are funding all the hate and bigotry and of course disinformation that is really becoming a scourge on our media ecosystem. And so tell me a bit more about that because I didn't really know that much about it either. And so I'm sitting here as a small business person and I'm like, yeah, I want to run an ad. Oh, I'm going to use Google ads because that's the easiest thing for me to do. And I don't think beyond that at all about where it's going to go or any of that. So tell me a bit more about what's actually happening. Like what is ad tech? A lot of people aren't even going to know what that is. Yeah. So digital advertising is really managed by a handful of middlemen. These middlemen are the ones that sit between advertisers and websites. And they are the ones that say, we're going to prioritize sending ads here versus here. They are really the traffic controllers of the ad tech industry. So if you're running a marketing campaign, you might have a budget and then you have some what's called key performance indicator goals. And these are goals that our ad tech vendors have given us. They've said, oh, you're running a campaign. You're going to want to know how many people have seen the ad. You're going to want to know the click-through rate, how many people clicked on the ad, and you're going to want to do it efficiently. You're going to want a low, it's called a CPM or cost per thousand views. So you're going to want to do it cheaply. And those are the three main indicators that they've told us we should care about. Of course, they've completely forgotten about things like brand equity and the importance of being associated with the right people in the right places. Anyway, that's what we call ad tech. Okay. So you're working in marketing and you're realizing that you don't really know much about how the system works. So what was your journey from there? How did you kind of start that deep dive? Back in 2016, my business partner had started a campaign called Sleeping Giants and they were just letting advertisers know when their ads were on Breitbart. Breitbart back then was enormous. It had more traffic than CNN.com and FoxNews.com combined right before the election. Okay. And it was run by this man named Steve Bannon, who ended up being Trump's chief strategist. And this man, Steve Bannon, his goal, he says, is to flood the zone with shit. Hmm. Those, that's the language he uses. He says hmm. the opposition is not the government. The opposition is the media. So they used Breitbart intentionally to seed doubt in the media industry, and they did so quite successfully. Anyway, advertisers didn't realize that they were there, and Sleeping Giants made them realize. And within three months, over 4,000 advertisers had blocked Breitbart, and 31 of Breitbart's 35 ad exchanges had just dropped them entirely at the request of advertisers. Wow. And advertisers said, yeah, right? So they were going to make $8 million in 2017. 90% of it disappeared because of this campaign. That's amazing. It was super successful. And that was back in you know early 2017 at this point. And advertisers said, hey, ad tech folks, <laughs> you are in charge of our campaigns. Th- to put it in perspective, marketers spend months putting together focus groups, qualitative and quantitative research, the right copy, the right colors, everything is pixel perfect. So to have the very last thing, the the placement of the ads sort of handed over is an incredibly trusting thing to do. And they said, don't make us sponsor racism and bigotry. So I'm just trying to play the scenario. So let's say I run a tire company 
And my corporate values are for equity and I want to be pro climate action and all of those kinds of things. And so I craft my campaign and I craft my ads and I hand it all over to an ad tech company to place those ads. And then the next thing I know, it could be running on some anti-climate or some racist site that I don't even know about. They can and they do. So all of the ad tech vendors for all of the advertisers in the world said, oh my goodness, you're right. We have written these new policies and we've put them on our website. So if you go to any major ad tech vendor, any ad exchange, especially Google, if you go to their publisher policies on the internet, they're freely available. They say no election disinformation, no climate change disinformation. Now they say no COVID-19 disinformation. One, one ad exchange is called Playwire. Their publisher policy says we don't work with publishers that seek to overthrow a government. So they've said, we've heard you. We'll take your brand safety into consideration. That's what they call it. They call it brand safety. Hmm. And so advertisers were like, oh, great. Problem solved. But we're now seeing that the disinformation economy is thriving more than ever. You know, this is the underbelly of everything. This is an industry that is 400 to $700 billion. Wow. Nobody knows if it's 400 or if it's 700. Oh <laughs> like it's impossible to measure. And the ad tech companies don't even know. The advertisers don't know. Of course, the publishers, the websites, they don't know either. Literally nobody knows if it's one number or maybe almost double that. So let's say 400 billion to be conservative. We know that about 15% of that 400 billion disappears. It's called the unknown delta. And what that means is that we should be asking a lot more questions. And Nandini and I decided to start a newsletter. It's called Branded. It's actually a free newsletter. You can find it at checkmyads.org/branded. And we just started asking questions publicly. That's how it all began. Wow. So you start a newsletter, you start asking questions, you're able to defund Breitbart and Steve Bannon. So you're starting to get some success. So then, then what happens? So we start writing about the technology that has been promised to advertisers that will block our ads from going towards hate. So we start writing about like keyword blocking or contextual intelligence. And as soon as we did that, we had a flood of ad tech researchers and experts come to us and sort of, you know, follow us into our DMs on Twitter and say, hey, if you're asking questions, there's a lot more that you need to know. And one after another, we had really amazing, powerful people come to us and say, you need to focus on this now. You need to uncover this now. And that's how we got started. It was really just us as marketers trying to figure things out. And we were shepherded by a much larger community of people who work within ad tech who have been concerned for years about what has been going on. Okay. So you started asking the questions and it sounds like you were really the first ones to start doing this publicly. And there's this whole groundswell of people who'd been waiting for somebody to step into that leadership role. Yeah, the concerns that ad tech people have had for years are things like it might be funding bigotry, but more importantly, it's full of fraud. It's full of inefficiency and bad business. 
people lie all the time in this industry and they can get away with it because it's digital and it's full of jargon and it's very opaque. It's very hard to know where your ads are going. And so there have been people who have been concerned about all kinds of issues for years. And the way that we put it was that, you know, this is now a disinformation economy. This industry has grown to be a powerhouse for people who want to publish in bad faith people who want to systematically feed us lies so that we distrust our neighbors more because it's it's both financially advantageous and politically advantageous to do so. And so that's how we've framed it. And we've been very aggressive in our assertion that this has to change. And from what I understand, there's really no regulation within the advertising industry that can influence that or stop that. Not yet. There is a little bit of self-regulation, which is a bit of a joke, but the ad tech industry after about 2017 decided to build more transparency sort of into the system. And we've, we've fought for people to really adhere to and enforce those standards. And there is starting to be attention given to the ad tech industry, both in Washington, D.C., Brussels, and London. And we'll see what happens. But Right now, it's still very much under the radar, which is wild because we're talking about real business relationships that have a direct impact on our media landscape. And in our politics. Absolutely. The way we see the world. Mm-hmm. And the way we vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So how did the newsletter and the social media work that you were doing, how did that grow into what is now the Check My Ads Institute? Oh, we just, every few months, we went viral with something new. We just told stories about what we saw, and it was it was one thing after the other. We started a, an agency about five or six months after we started the newsletter, and the agency also was called Check My Ads. It's since closed because we started a nonprofit, but the agency was for Fortune 500 companies, specifically the departments of communications, marketing, brand, and advertising. So that's four different departments within a major company. And we would bring them together and we would build these brand safety guidelines and then have this document that they could then use to dictate how their ads should and should not be spent. And what we realized in that year of running the agency, it was lots of people wanted to talk to us. Lots of people wanted to work with us. But as soon as they started checking the ads, they found that they actually were not in control and they needed to assert themselves in ways that they weren't comfortable doing against these ad tech vendors. There's a real power imbalance within this business relationship. And what we realized is that the ad tech system needs a watchdog. And so we shuttered the agency and built out a nonprofit specifically to be that public watchdog where we would call out companies publicly to the advertisers and say, these companies are acting in bad faith. They're doing bad business. They're telling you one thing and doing another. And that's how we have taken millions out of the disinformation economy. So that's quite a journey in terms of discovering where the real need is going from thinking that it's a service to offer to companies to help them build their brand safety guidelines to recognizing that that's still not enough to solve the real problem and that something else was required. I think we did what many people do, which is we forget that advertisers are human beings with thoughts and perspectives, and they know 
what's going on. Like we didn't have to show them what disinformation is. They know. Mm-hmm. Also, we're not talking about the gray area. You know, we're talking about the very worst things on the internet, the very most prominent voices that are spreading disinformation. And they know that they don't want to be there. And so what we have to do is give them control over where their campaigns go. And really that should be the goal anyway. I mean, this is a business problem just as much as a society problem. Right now, the power imbalance is unfair and we need to fix it. And I'm curious why the ad tech companies have such power. So I'm sitting here naively thinking, okay, if I'm an organization and I hand my ad over and then it gets placed somewhere where I said I didn't want it placed, is there not some kind of a legal recourse for me? Or if I do that, am I going to get blacklisted by them and now I can't advertise anywhere? There is a a power imbalance for so many reasons. You've just said a couple of them. One is, you know, they can be too big. Like Google is really, really big. It's hard Mm. to hold them accountable. They can punish you with just higher cost per thousand views, or they can deprioritize your ads on the ad space somehow. You don't know what's going on. And so that makes you nervous. It could affect your bottom line if you really push hard enough. The other thing is that they've used these words that mean nothing to the regular person. They've created an entire lexicon that describes all of the technical details of a campaign, and they wield that against advertisers very effectively to kind of explain how things work in a way that is really obfuscating and impenetrable. The other thing is that They have it in their contracts many times that you don't get your log level data unless you specify in the contract that you require it. So you don't get to check your ads. You just get high level key performance indicators. They've also just bullied our clients. They've said things like, why are you asking so many questions? Or they go to a person's boss and they say, this person is poking around too much. You know, it's affecting our business relationship. And that really scares them. It sounds a little mafia-like to me (laughs) in some ways. I don't really mean that as an accusation, but it's just that whole conspiracy, really, and that secrecy that I had no idea really existed. Yep. I think that's a a reasonable characterization, and I don't think that's extreme to say that. We are dealing with an industry that has gotten away with this kind of behavior for two decades now. Right. Okay. So you've got all of this amazing knowledge now that it feels like not very many people have about what's going on behind the scenes. And you're seeing what the impact of this is on society. So you decide you're going to start a nonprofit. Now starting a nonprofit, you know, it's one thing to file the paperwork, but it's another to build the organization and get the funding and all of those kinds of things. So tell me a bit about how that piece of the journey went. So we filed for a, it's a 990. We filed for 501c3 status in the States in something like August of 2021. And we launched in October. We built a website out. We launched and that was far more successful than we expected. You know, every time you do something in public like this, you know, when we started our newsletter, when we started the agency, and then again, when we started our nonprofit, it felt like we were jumping off a cliff and we were just praying that folks would catch us. Hmm. Nandini and I, every time before we've pressed 
go on any of these things, we've said, oh my God, do we really want to do this? It just opens us up to so much criticism and to so much hate. And what if people think we're crazy? We're just two people trying to take on $700 billion of an ad tech industry. But that's not what happened. What happened is people came through. They immediately started donating. We had individuals give anywhere between $5 and $100 a month. We had individuals send us sort of $15,000 at a time. And then we also had some foundations come through. And that's how we funded ourselves to date. That's incredible. And tell me a bit more about the fear that comes when you're going to take each of these big steps. Where are you finding the courage to make those leaps? You know, we have a team of nine now, and we talk to them all the time about what we're dealing with and what we're up against. And you can't really optimize to win when you're up against such a big, powerful force. Yes, we're fighting hate and we're fighting racism. It's actually so much more than that. We are up against the rise of global authoritarianism right now in the world. You know, this this weaponry that is the ad tech system is a playground for propagandists and for people who act in bad faith and for people who want there to be global fascism. They want there to be a two-tiered system where one group gets away with absolute impunity and the rest are always afraid of being criminalized for some reason or another. And we are dealing with a rise. It's just next year in 2024, we have 50 to 70 elections around the world. Uh, Maria Ressa, Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa, the journalist in the Philippines, says, you know, this is the last two minutes of a basketball game against authoritarianism. And that we're back to 1989 levels of democracy. We've actually regressed in the last little while. So we're not optimizing to win, Denise. We can't. We, we, <laughs> all we have to do, <laughs> we just have to optimize for self-respect. And I think that's that's where we start. And I think the second thing is to not listen to the haters, the people who say that we are somehow sort of leftists because we're standing up against this disinformation economy. Don't understand that this is no longer a political conversation. This is not a left versus right political discussion like we're used to. We are now moderates standing up against extremism. Of all forms. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I mean, When people lie systematically in bad faith in order to make money or in order for political gain, it really harms us as a society. It makes us all less safe. And so that's what we're doing now. It's sort of the CBC the other day called it being radically moderate. And you're the only organization that's doing this pretty much in North America. That's right. I mean, we are the only ad tech watchdog. Now, I want to be very careful with that. We are not the only ones talking about disinformation, of course. We're not the only ones talking about advertising or or social media, but we are the only ad tech watchdog in that even journalists are dependent on advertising, and we are independent of that. And I think that makes it a very precarious position for both us and for journalists. You know, we really feel quite alone, and journalists feel quite trapped between needing advertising and also needing to hold advertising account. I can see that that independence is critical to being able to do what you need to do. I'm curious about the innovation part of this. You're constantly 
problem solving and you know as the system changes and i'm sure as the ad tech industry tries to respond to the pressure you're putting on them you're constantly having to iterate and find new ways to solve problems and to continue to meet your mission so tell me a bit more about how you do that in your mindset yeah endlessly innovating i mm. i think it's important to say that we would not be here without just a giant network of people who see the problem and who want to fix it. You know, that's how innovation begins is through collaboration and supporting one another with ideas and frameworks and literally just wordsmithing sometimes. You know, when we come to people with challenges that we're working on, we'll work together to find the clearest way of explaining something, but also to be entertaining and engaging at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because that's, ad tech is boring. Ad tech is, is difficult to understand. It's not engaging. They don't even want you to know. So we are always sort of having to innovate with the way that we approach a problem and the way that we communicate about it. So much of it comes down to language. Right. It's a lot easier to trigger fear than it is to inspire critical thinking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. So, you know, you've run some pretty big campaigns and you mentioned Breitbart. What, what, what do you think has been your biggest success to date? Last year on January 6, 2022, we launched a campaign that said defund the insurrectionists. Yeah, it had been a year of us just going like, wait a second, the people who made the most money off the big lie are still making money even after this like incredibly violent insurrection. Hmm. Playwire had put in that phrase in their publisher policy that said, we don't work with corporations or websites that seek to overthrow a government. The publisher policy at Google and Magnite and the trade desk, they all say no election disinformation. And so we thought it was strange that the people who made the most money in advertising off of the big lie were still being monetized. And and we said so publicly. So those people were Dan Bongino, who's big on Facebook, Charlie Kirk, he's a white nationalist millennial who sent 80 buses to the insurrection full of people. (laughs) Glenn Beck, most people know who that is. Tim Poole, he's a YouTuber just asking questions, Um, and Steve Bannon, because he's still at it, and then Tucker Carlson at Fox News, who is the biggest proponent of the big lie in America. And we identified those six. We called them the J66, and we defunded five of them before we got to Fox News. And so what does that look like when you say you defunded them? What does that mean? means the ad exchanges that were monetizing them dropped them because they were like, oh, yeah, you're right. They did make a lot of money off the big line. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we've almost wholly demonetized five of the six. And then last year, we publicly said, you know, we also have to defund Fox News. We hate to say it, but they're making a lot of money on the internet because of this lie. And they have to stop. And we have to talk about it. And so when you look at those five that you defunded, I mean, how much money are we talking about? Millions, probably tens of millions. It's impossible to know because of the opacity of this industry. 
But our confirmed list, we measure our success by how many ad tech companies drop how many websites. And our confirmed list last year totaled 50. That's amazing. And it's too bad that there's no way to really track the long-term impact of that work. I'm sure that's Yeah, that's kind of the point, isn't it, Denise? Like, we should know. Yeah. So (laughs) what what do you think has been the secret to your success so far? I mean, not to be wishy-washy, but the secret to Nandini's and my success is that we work very well together. We are a very good partnership, and we are clear-sighted when it comes to this issue. I think our success is uh, based on a number of things. You know, I've already said collaboration with the wider network of people that support us, but also each other. And the fact that we really pay attention to the details and we try really, really hard to get them right. Yeah, you've got a lot going on. When you look back over the last few years, is there anything that you would do differently? Hmm. I think I would have liked to have started earlier. I would have Mm -hmm. liked to have started before we got to the place where people are are really going off the deep end into disinformation. I feel an urgency around this. That said, I don't know if I would have been ready financially or personally. It's a big job, and I think that we're at the right place and the right time to fix it. And that, that reflection about readiness is really interesting because I've heard that from others as well. And I think... You really nailed it. You needed the sum of your experiences and your learning to be able to take action at the right time. Yes. And being financially stable is no joke. You know, I was very, very badly injured at one point in my life and I had to recover from that and I had to financially recover from that. And I don't think it's talked about enough that in order to jump off a cliff the way that we have done now three times, you have to have a little bit of cushion in the bank. Not so much, but you have to not be worried about the next year of your life and finances. And I think that that is something that is often forgotten. So I I like to mention it because especially if younger people are listening, we don't have to jump without something to at least make sure that our needs are met physiologically. Yes. And I do appreciate you bringing that up. And it makes me wonder about the role of equity in opportunities to do social innovation like this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have that financial cushion, does that preclude you from being able to follow your calling? Yeah, absolutely. It does. Right. Yeah. Any any last words for people out there about ways that they can support you in this good work? Thank you. The number one way to support Check My Ads and this work, really, just the entire business of watching these traffic controllers of ads, money, and data. If you want to be a part of the solution to disinformation, and if you want to shore up democracy, the best way to support this work is by becoming a checkmate. So go to checkmyads.org slash membership and sign up for as little as $5 a month. We are going to be starting a book club this year where anyone can come and meet with the author, learn about the issues that we're facing today. Every time we have a branded, we already host a Checkmates call where we're on with our members, where everyone can sort of contribute to the larger conversation. That's always exciting. We want you to be involved. So that's at checkmyads.org slash membership. 
I love that so much. I'm definitely down for the book club. So yeah, yeah. excellent. Claire, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights. I have a ton more questions. So maybe we'll check back in in a year or two and I'll see where things are at and you'll have some more stories to tell us. Oh yeah, even more wild by then, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Quest for Good, a story series about how innovators break down barriers to create a better future. If you liked the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or better yet, share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about how innovation stories can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at deniswithers.com. Denise